two, three. Dear friends in Christ, this is one of the few times in my 31 years of pastoral ministry with you that I have not been able to talk with you in person on a Sunday. But I think it's probably safe to say that we are in uncharted territory with the COVID-19 pandemic. The coronavirus has changed life as we know it in our world. Travel, schools, sporting events, even gathering for worship has been restricted. Like so many of you, our staff has been watching the situation develop with great fluidity and to the best of our ability, assessing what it means for our congregation. Today, before I share the message for this Sunday, I want to take a few minutes and talk with you personally about how we are responding and offer a word of hope and encouragement. Friday in a staff meeting, we asked the question, where is God in all of this? When we're afraid, when we're uncertain, when Wall Street is plunging, how do we as people of faith respond when we're living on the edge? In other words, how are Christ followers to live and act in a pandemic when death and danger and the future and jobs and travel and massive uncertainty is all around us? How do we think and feel about all of this? What is our response? First and foremost today, I would remind you that God is in control. Nothing happens in this world by accident or without his knowledge. Yes, we live in a fallen world, and there have been global crises before. So we need to think clearly about our own heart and our own life, whether it runs on toilet paper or hand sanitizer or people all around us in a panic. People are afraid. My question for you is this, where is our focus? Jesus reminds us, I am with you always. So is our focus going to be on the problems or on our Lord? Is our focus going to be on the panic or on the calm? God promises us grace and peace in the midst of chaos. Christ followers always have a choice. We can refuse to live in fear and look to the Lord. I would encourage you to read the story in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22, which reminds us of an important lesson. When Peter kept his focus on Jesus, he could walk on the water. But when he focused on the waves, he sank. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 9, our Lord gives Joshua this charge, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God is with us. We are change agents, not victims. We are not people who need to react in panic. We're not going to be reckless. We're going to be wise and take precautions like everyone else. And we take our mission to protect our church family very seriously. Here at Redeemer, we've had to cancel our 180 turnaround conference and a few other events over the next few weeks. In cooperation with Bishop Bard's request of all United Methodist Churches in Michigan, we've also canceled worship services at church today. But we believe that God is in control and will use even this stressful time for good. As people of faith, we can respond differently than the world around us. Is our focus on what we hear on the news and what people are saying, or is it on the Lord? 
So in closing, let me just say that we are still about connecting people with the love and life of Jesus Christ. We are still about being a catalyst for change in churches all across our state. We are still about being the light of Christ in our own local community. And we are still working to fulfill the mission and vision that God has given us despite the disruptions that we are living through. Here's what we know today. The current situation with the coronavirus will pass. God is still in control. And the disruptions and culture of fear that is being promoted all around us present us with an opportunity to offer hope and to be in ministry in our community. Please do not hesitate to reach out to us if you have questions or concerns during this time. We can be a model to the world on how to respond in a time of crisis. And my prayer for you is that your faith and trust in Jesus remain steadfast. And may our witness to God's life in us be a light to all who are in need around us. Today's message is the sixth in this current teaching series on the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The text for today is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And the message is entitled, The Reward of Faithfulness. Do you ever wonder what sort of church Jesus prefers? Do you think he might prefer Baptist or United Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian or Episcopal or non-denominational? Maybe we should ask the question another way. Does Jesus prefer rural churches or mega churches, house churches, city churches, multi-site churches, church plants, independent churches, new churches, old churches? Or does Jesus prefer large buildings, storefronts, apartments, or cathedrals? Thankfully, we are not left to wonder about the answer. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 tell us what sort of church Jesus prefers. When we survey the seven churches mentioned here, we discover that none of the things I've just listed for you is on the list. When Jesus looks at a church, I doubt that he's looking at outward things. Rather, I believe he's looking for deeper signs of growing faith, enthusiastic love, and abiding hope. He wants the church to be motivated by love, to be founded on truth, to be strong under pressure and unashamed of his name. Of the seven churches, only Smyrna and Philadelphia received no words of condemnation. It is not coincidental that both churches were facing strong opposition because of their bold witness. Hard times generally make for strong churches, especially when the hard times come because the church refuses to compromise the gospel. Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, records the letter to the church at Philadelphia, a city about 35 miles southeast of Sardis. Because it was located near a fault line, earthquakes were a constant threat. This city of brotherly love was intended to be a kind of missionary city to introduce Greek culture to the surrounding region. Built on a narrow pass between two mountain ranges, Philadelphia stood as a literal doorway to the rest of Asia Minor. The church in that city was the youngest and smallest of the seven churches. 
But even though it was small in size, our Lord opened a huge door for this faithful congregation. Here is a church that meets Christ's approval. And as we study this letter, let's think about our own church and consider how we measure up. Look at verses seven and eight. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. These verses teach us a couple of important truths. First, we learn that Christ opens and closes doors. When God opens a door, no one can shut it, and when he closes a door, no one can open it. Sometimes people ask me, how can I know when God has opened a door? There are a variety of ways to answer that question, but the simplest answer is, you won't know until you go through the door. It's been my experience that sometimes the door is obvious and we just walk right through and sometimes we need a little shove. Maybe it's a decision to to apply for a new job or to step out in faith and go back to school or a decision to buy a new home. In the Old Testament, there is a story about God's people traveling to a new place and leading the procession were the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. But they came up against a significant barrier, a large river. How would they ever get across? Then God told them to step into the river and walk across. Every instinct told them that it couldn't be done. But when they finally stepped into the river, the water parted for them and they crossed on dry land. Sometimes the door doesn't open until we take a step of faith and walk through it. I think it's a good thing that we don't know the future because I doubt we could handle it. The future with all of its ups and downs and twists and turns, with all the unexpected things that we don't see coming is all so overwhelming that if we knew what was coming, we would probably run the other way. Life is better lived one day at a time. Open doors are also like that. God rarely shows us the big picture in advance. The open door is usually a door pushed slightly open. We still have to get up the courage to go through the door and see what's on the other side. Jesus himself, the one who is holy and true, the one who has all authority, opens doors for his people. It's his job to open the doors, it's very, and he's very good at it, and he doesn't need our help. Our job is to go through the door that he opens, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, going wherever he may lead us. One door may open, and then it may close. That's okay, another door may open, that's okay too. We may have to sit still for a while, waiting for a door to open, that's also okay. Jesus is sovereign over the doors of life. We can trust him. Sometimes life deals us a crushing blow. Sometimes we are left disheartened and confused, and that too is part of the life of faith. Sometimes doors close. So we bow before the Lord who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. Secondly, we learn that Christ honors faith not strength. 
Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia in verse eight, I know all the things you do, and I have opened the door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Little strength and great opportunity often go hand in hand. Sometimes small churches think there is little they can do for the Lord, but it is all a matter of perspective. The church at Philadelphia had little strength. We can assume that they didn't have much money or many influential people, but they had great faith. And here's a lesson for all of us. We may not be as wise or as eloquent as someone else, and we may not have the money or the influence of our neighbors. We may not be as educated or as well-connected, but we can trust the Lord just as well as anyone else. What is it that God honors? It's faith. What is he looking for? Faith. What does God reward? Faith. And how much faith does he require? Not much. Faith like a mustard seed, just a tiny smidgen of faith, not the faith of many years and deep knowledge. He honors the faith of a child. Simple faith. Notice the two wonderful things Jesus says about this church. He says, you obeyed my word and you did not deny me. Keeping God's word involves holding fast to the words of Jesus. And not denying Jesus means we aren't embarrassed to be people of faith. Some people feel slightly ashamed of their faith. They follow Jesus, but but they keep it to themselves. Don't rock the boat, don't cause problems, don't stir up trouble. How sad. When Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, their opponents tried to have them arrested. Acts 17, 6 records the charge their enemies made against them. They said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. (laughs) How's that for an insult? These men have turned the world upside down. I wonder if anyone would ever say that about us. They meant it as an accusation, but it was really a compliment. What a great thing to have said about us, that we managed to turn the world upside down. I can't think of a greater compliment for a follower of Jesus Christ or a church. We know that Satan opposes the gospel. He doesn't like people of faith or the good news about Jesus. And sometimes we hear people talk about easy places to be a Christian but it's nonsense, there are no easy places. If we decide that we're gonna stand for Jesus and tell the community what the Bible says and who God is, if we firmly but kindly declare that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we will have enemies. And not all of them will be outside the church. Some of our fiercest critics will be found among those who listen to the good news being preached every Sunday. We live in a day when people, even good church people, would prefer to trim their sails so that they don't offend other people. We want to be known as good people, good neighbors, fine and friendly folk, and a safe haven for the hurting. And who can object to that? Certainly not me. But there is a fine line between wanting to reach the community and not telling people the full truth of God. The gospel is good news. But before it is good news, it is bad news, and unless we tell the bad news, the good news won't seem very good. 
In one of his books, Francis Schaeffer remarked that if he were riding on a train and had only one hour to share the gospel with a fellow passenger, he would spend 45 minutes talking about sin and about righteousness and about judgment, and then he would spend the last 15 minutes inviting them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think the believers at Philadelphia would appreciate that approach. They cared enough about the truth that they made some powerful enemies in the community. That was a mark of their faithfulness to Christ. Look at verse nine. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Now the, Satan, the synagogue of Satan refers to those Jews in Philadelphia who persecuted the early believers. Seeing Jesus as a threat to their way of life, they hated Jesus and those who followed him. But Jesus says they are liars, and that's not all. The day will come when these hostile enemies will bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some scholars see this as a promise that there will yet be a large reawakening of faith today as the church preaches to the unreached people groups of the world. We must not be intimidated by those who today have no use for Christianity. Not only are they wrong in their current estimation of Jesus, but that will not be their final answer. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 pictures a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it willingly, but on the day of judgment, those who have no use for Christ or for Christians will see how wrong they were, and they too will acknowledge him as Lord. I've known football coaches who tell their players, play as hard as you can, and when the game is over, look up at the scoreboard and see who's ahead. John is saying something like that to these Christians. Only he adds one key point. Play hard even when you think you're behind, because when the game is over, you're going to be on the winning team. Here's a great promise in verse 10. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Sometimes the best we can do is just to endure patiently. Spiritual warfare isn't all roses and rainbows. Sometimes it means not giving up when we feel like throwing in the towel. Our Lord makes a precious promise to those suffering saints he looks ahead to a time of trial that will engulf the whole world before Christ comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. The last days will be marked by lots of difficulty. Scripture often speaks of the time of trouble that will shake the earth and prepare the world for the coming of the Lord. But here's the promise. Because we have been faithful, Jesus will keep his people from that time of trial. Verse 11 I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. You can't read this passage without getting a sense that the early believers expected Christ to come at any moment. He said to them, I am coming soon. I wonder how many of us believe that today. This verse calls us to do two things 
while we look for the coming of Christ. First, we are to live as if Jesus may come at any moment and work as though our time is short. The longer I've been in ministry, the more urgent I feel that we must tell people that Jesus is coming soon. And people need to know Jesus. I don't know how much more time God will give me to do this job, so I feel the urgency to do this now. And second, we are to overcome by faith. Again, verses 12 and 13. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. The challenge to overcome is one we face every single day. If I ask you today to name a time when you faced a challenge and responded in faith, I'm guessing that many of you would name big events like facing surgery or losing a job or dealing with a broken marriage. I don't doubt that these are events that call us to live by faith, but I wonder if we are not missing some truly great challenges like I will get out of bed today and I will be happy. I will go to work even though I don't like my job. I will be kind instead of rude today. I will forgive when it would be easier to get even. I will not lose my temper with my children or my spouse today. This is where overcomers are made. It's easy to read Revelation chapters two and three and imagine the overcomers as some special breed of super Christians who live on a level far above the rest of us mortals. But it's not so. We are all called to be overcomers every single day because we have lots to overcome. Temptations galore, frustrations on every hand, disagreeable people, difficult situations, unexpected setbacks, angry critics, internal discouragement, chronic pain, friends who aren't very friendly, personal failures known only to us. There are always reasons to give up, always reasons to quit, always plenty of excuses if we want them. But to those who persevere, who will not give up even when they feel like it and when everything in them says, walk away from this mess, to those brave souls who keep on keeping on in Christ, he makes two incredible promises. First, Jesus promises his people that we will be pillars in God's temple and we will never leave God's presence. These words mean a great deal because Philadelphia had been destroyed by a terrible earthquake and the citizens were used to evacuating the city. But to those who trust in Jesus, they will be safe and secure forever. It's a great thing to have a place we can call home. It ought to be the one place where we are known and loved and always welcomed. Jesus is saying they may not like you so much in Philadelphia, but you've got a home with me in heaven. I'll make you a pillar in my temple so that you will be close to me forever. And then secondly, he says, the power to name is the power of ownership. Those whom God has redeemed, he will will be named and claimed by God himself. All the old names won't matter anymore. Doctor, lawyer, professor, politician, 
coach, banker, teacher, famous athlete, richest man, most influential woman. But there are other names that won't matter either. Felon, failure, hatred, abandoned, humiliated, unappreciated, liar, adulterer. In that great day, for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone, who have sought his forgiveness and have committed their life to the way of Christ, the blood of Jesus will wash away all the tags by which we know each other. Our good names won't matter, and our bad names won't be remembered. We will all stand on the same ground, saved, redeemed, renewed, and renamed by our Lord. We will be given the name of the new Jerusalem because that's where we will spend eternity. All believers in Jesus have a passport stamped citizen of heaven and a visa guaranteeing us permanent entrance. No one can stop us. No one can hinder us. No one can say, you have no right to be here. We enter by the blood of Jesus and in his name we find our place in the heavenly city. Now this ought to encourage all of us. The world often takes Christians for granted and sees no value in us, but God honors his faithful servants. We may have no security down here. Indeed, any earthly security is slim at best. We lock our doors because thieves may enter, and we know that the stock market may collapse today or tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. If we want real security for all eternity, we find it only in Jesus Christ. One day we will have a new name and we will live in a city that cannot be shaken. You see, the reward is glorious. The honor is beyond all earthly honors. The contempt and hostility for the Christian faith are temporary. The dignity and the blessedness of knowing Jesus are forever. God, help us to be faithful to Jesus, the one who has done so much for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you alone hold the keys to eternal life. So hear our prayer for your church, especially for those who may feel themselves small or insignificant. We pray that this church would keep God's word and remain faithful in the face of all opposition. We pray that we would not deny Jesus' name or character, but remain faithful until you return. We pray that our congregation would have such an influence in our community that those who may oppose us or be indifferent to matters of faith would come to know Jesus. And finally, we pray that you would help us to proclaim your word with grace and truth to all who would listen in these troubled times. Lord, hear our prayer as we await your return with expectancy and with hope. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.